We will begin, Lord willing, this morning a new study for our Sunday worship services on the book of Ruth as we study through the book of Ruth together. And I originally intended to try to just summarize the book for you and then draw four or five conclusions from the book. But the more I studied it and the more I read it, the more I realized that there was no way that we could get everything out of this book that we wanted to in one message. In fact, as you know with our ministers, it it might be hard to get everything we want out of a single message in a single message. And as we make the joke, our prefaces are 45 minutes and our sermons are 15 minutes. Sometimes there's just not enough time to share everything that you can out of a book of the Bible or a portion of the book of the Bible in one message. This book is, the book of Ruth, is a very encouraging account, and I think that at present we need some encouragement, and I think that we would all agree on that. What a year 2020 has been. Somebody asked, can you take the disc out and blow on it and put it back? Can you reset? Is there a reset button for 2020? But we know that sometimes this world has problems that we have to deal with, and sometimes there are many problems that come at once. If you read through the Old Testament, there were many times that the nation of Israel had to endure serious problems, very terrible problems. Many times their afflictions were brought about by their own disobedience to God, their rebellion to God. Sometimes they suffered afflictions as the nation that God had called out in the world. And so their existence was one of suffering, and we know that the things that were written aforehand were written for our learning. We have the Old Testament not only to bring us to the time of Christ, but in all of these stories, we find instruction as these men and women of faith endured things and many times triumphed as they endured things by faith. Now, as we introduce this concept or this book, rather, to you, the book of Ruth, I'm going to say to the ladies that are with us today, especially the young girls, that in this particular woman, Ruth, who is the star of the show, if you will, throughout the book of Ruth, she epitomizes so many godly traits. If you want to know a biblical role model for you as a woman, out of the Bible, the book of Ruth would give that character to you to aspire to be like and to emulate in your own life. Ruth was a very godly woman. She was a woman of faith, and we'll see how God worked in her life. We'll see how she was more faithful than people in her own generation. And I believe that you'll, as a woman, find great encouragement out of studying the book of Ruth. And for the men folk here, when we come to the next chapters of, of this short four-chapter book and we begin studying Boaz, he was an older man, but he was a very godly man too. He was a very righteous man. Now, I can't introduce the book of Ruth to you without making a dad joke, and you can all groan and roll your eyes. I wish Brother Jesse was here today. He's in Georgia, and I wish Sister Hannah was here today. She's also in a different part of Georgia because they both love when I make dad jokes. And, of course, I just told you a lie in the pulpit. They, they groan every time I make dad jokes. You know, eventually in this book, Ruth and Boaz would meet. So you might say that up until the time that he, that he met her, Boaz was ruthless. Anyway, so in this wonderful account, we have some very famous language as well, some beautiful language that we'll take note of as we study through this book together. I hope that we can find encouragement in this. Doesn't the world need encouragement right now? Don't, don't your hearts need to be strengthened right now? You have a pandemic on one hand and all the political arguing that comes with that and the concern that comes with that. And at the same time, as if that wasn't enough, now we have tragedy in the world and abuse in the world that leads to rioting and plundering and looting and cities burning all around us and then the response that comes from that and it's just a terrible terrible time in our country early on i said that i don't know if what we're going through right now is a judgment because pandemics can be judgments and then sometimes they're just the result of sin and common demand but after the more recent events it would be hard to convince me that our nation is not under some form of judgment of god because of the terrible things that we're experiencing and how they continue to get worse and worse. 
Now we turn to the book of Ruth chapter 1 and we'll just begin setting up the context of this book, the timetable of this book. Now it came to pass in the days when judges ruled. That gives us our setting. You'll notice often when a book of the Bible begins introducing itself, whether it's a prophet or some of the writing in Scripture, that many times there's a statement of dating it. It might say in the days of King so-and-so or in the Babylonian captivity or times such as that. Here we have in chapter 1, verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. And so this tells us that this is after Israel went into Canaan's land. It's why it is where it is in your English New, uh, Old Testaments. This is after Israel goes into Canaan's land, and it's nearer to the end of their time period without a king. In fact, the book just before this was entitled Judges, and we'll draw a couple of observations out of the book of Judges. This is before, however, the nation of Israel had a physical king. You remember in the book of 1 Samuel, they begin to grumble and gripe, and they say, we want to be like the other nations in the world around us. We want to have a king. The nation has a king. And so God suffers them to have a man named King Saul. He stood head and shoulders <coughs> above every other person there, <coughs> every other man there. He was very attractive. He was a very goodly person, and yet he was a train wreck of a king. They picked a king based upon the character traits that they thought were best. And then, as you know, the second king of Israel, God raised up, was a man named David, a man after God's own heart. Now, what we read in the book of Ruth is very integral to the story of David because these are people who found themselves, who we find, in the ancestry of David. And so this is, you might say, his pedigree. And since this is the pedigree of King David, since these are the ancestors of King David, these are also the ancestors of what important figure of the Bible? The most important figure of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus is a son of David. He was a son of David by birth in that Mary was an offspring of David, and David was the, or Jesus was the offspring of Mary, but adoptively, Jesus' adoptive father was Joseph, and Joseph was also a son of David. And so what we're reading about here in Ruth plays an important part even in the overall story of the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture, his lineage, where he came from in a physical sense. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. What do we make of that language? This is a very unique era for them. They had men that ruled over them, such as Moses, in, in a sense, he's the person who gave the law, he's the person that made the decisions. You know, when he passed away, there was a man who rose up, a man named Joshua. He was a young man when they left Canaan's land, and he was an aged man as they go into Canaan's land. Joshua was a central figure in the nation of Israel. But it came a time in the history of Israel between entering into Canaan's land, the passing away of Moses and men like Joshua, and the instituting of a king that, as you see in Judges, the last verse of Judges, if you're looking at Ruth, you just back up one verse. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so in this time, there was no king, there was no central Moses figure, and so people basically did what they thought was right based upon their understanding of the word, sometimes not even based upon their understanding of the word. Sometimes they just did what they wanted to do. Now, this is generally regarded as a time of spiritual decline among the nation of Israel. This wasn't a good time for them, spiritually speaking. Now, honestly, if you look at the history of Israel from the perspective of a life at ease or a life of righteousness and a life of godliness, there were not many seasons of utopia in the nation of Israel. They were always at war in the ministry of David, and that was the heyday. Those were the good old days, and they were always at war. There were times when they fell into idolatry. There were times when there were famines. There were times when there were pestilences and plagues. It was a land, even though it was Canaan's land, a land very much full of hills and valleys and enemies and battles and wars. And so there was no utopia age of the nation of Israel. 
This was a very dark time, though, in the sense that there was spiritual decline. In lack of a physical king, as it pertained to the national direction, they did that which was right in their own eyes. This was a time period between the 11th and 14th century, and the laws or the execution of those laws was determined by, as you read in chapter 1 and verse 1, the judges. Now, we have a book of the Bible entitled Judges, and if you want to go and read that just as a personal study, we're not going to do that. But prior to the book of Ruth, prior to the book of 1 Samuel, you have the setting up of various judges that made the decisions. In other words, when Moses, through God's providence, God gives the law through Moses, you have all these laws. If you have a hole and an ox falls in it, a person has to pay for that. Well, who determines that? How do you litigate that? Well, you go before a judge, and the judge would litigate that for you, and whatever they said went. You also had at this time in Israel the priests who performed all of their priestly duties, and you were beginning to see those who were referred to as prophets or seers. Now, before they were called prophets, they were called seers, S-E-E-R-S, and the root of that obviously is the word see. In the book of Proverbs, where we read, where there is no vision, the people perish, that word vision comes from similar word to that word seer, see, you see the prophets would see visions from God. And so when we read where there is no vision, the people perish, is not saying that a pastor needs to have a grand plan for the church. It's saying where God is not speaking and where God's word is not, the people perish. We live or we die based upon our adherence to this word. And I think in Ruth chapter 1, there might be some examples of that. It wouldn't be very hard to extrapolate. The judges first began to be referred to in the book of Exodus. So this tells us that they were something that took place, that there were an office of people that had a work in the world all the way back in Exodus chapter 21 in the ministry of Moses. Exodus chapter 22. You have all of these infractions, and if any of them should occur, there would be a bringing it to the judges, sometimes bringing it before the priests, and if there had been a crime committed, that crime would be effectively dealt with. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, we have some words about judges. Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. So what is the purpose of a judge in ancient Israel? They were to judge. You notice they shall make thee in all thy gates. Just a reference on that. It was a common thing for the trials of a city to be decided in the gates of a city. If you read passages of Scripture about a man raising up good children and he reasons with his enemies in the gates... All these references in the Old Testament to the gates, the gates, the entryway of the city, the gates of the city is often where judgment and justice would be found. And so rather than going to the Madison County Courthouse and appearing before a magistrate, the decisions would be decided in the gates of the city. And so judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment, with just judgment. Now, what does the phrase just judgment mean? It, it means that the judges should seek perfect and complete justice to the best of their abilities. There should be no injustice. There should be no letting off of criminals. And at no time should an innocent person be punished for something that they didn't do. God gave provisions for that in the law of God. You might recall the language that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, things had to be established. You had to have witness testimony for someone to be prosecuted and punished for a crime. Many of the crimes took two or three witnesses. In Judges chapter 2, just giving you a little bit of information about the judges and their role in Israel because this takes place in the time period of the judges. In Judges chapter 2, we find language about God's providential care of the judges. Now, much like it is today, back in that day, those who executed justice and judgment in a society, they were not popular people. Now, we're blessed here with a couple of uh, law officers in our congregation and occasionally one FBI agent. And 
My father's a retired police officer. I can tell you, their families can tell you, they can tell you, sometimes police officers are not popular people. Just give you an example that we all understand. Let's say you're driving about 85 down the interstate and you see that gray SUV parked on the side of the road on the shoulder in the emergency lane. Do you think, oh, look, great. I haven't seen a police officer all day. I'm just so glad to see a state trooper. No, you don't think that. You're like, you hit the brakes and your car nose dives. I learned a trick when I was in high school. Drop down a gear and you slow down without brake lights anyway. You don't want to hit the brakes. You don't want the ticket. You're not happy to see the law officer when you're breaking the law. Well, this caused them to have a very unpopular reputation in the nation of Israel. Uh, Judges chapter 2 speaks about some of the sins of Israel. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Balaam. They forsook the God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods. This happens over and over and over again. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. As they sin, God gives them over. They're judged. They suffer. They're greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. In other words, the fathers obeyed the commandments of God, but these people did not obey the commandments of God. Not only did they fall into sin, but they, fall, they fell into idolatry. And what does the Word of God consider idolatry? A difference in opinion? That's what people consider idolatry today. Well, you serve your God, I serve my God, many different paths to the top of the same mountain, and that's utter nonsense. That's rubbish. They went whoring after other gods. And you say, that's strong language. It is strong language. That's what God considers idolatry. He considers it spiritual adultery. And so we ought to be very, very careful about how we worship and who we worship. God takes this very seriously. I'll give you a practical example of this as we just have Memorial Day past us. Occasionally I've been playing at, participating in as, as a local trumpet player, Various civic town ceremonies, city ceremonies for Memorial Day, Veterans Day, things such as that nature. I pay very close attention to whatever person from Huntsville is called upon to give the invocation. And if that person is not a Jesus Christ-loving, Bible-believing Christian, when the invocation is offered, I don't bow my head. Why? Because they may not be praying to the same God that I pray to. And I'm not bowing my head. Every prayer is not on equal footing. All prayer is not the same. These children of Israel went a-whoring after other gods. They bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which was their fathers, which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord. But they did not so. And when the Lord raised up judges, the Lord was with the judge. Notice this, Judges 2.18. And delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reasons of them that oppressed them and vexed them. It's an amazing thing. They sin, God gives them oppression, God gives them punishment through affliction from other peoples and other nations, and then when they're afflicted, they begin to cry out unto God and cry out unto God, and God in His mercy hears, and God in His mercy delivers them even though they're in the predicament they're in because of their wicked rebellion. And this happened over and over in the nation of Israel. God raises up these judges and he delivers the judges. He delivers through the judges. Came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. This is cyclical. It goes on over and over and over. They served other gods. They bowed down to them. They ceased not from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. I don't know. I don't know if you realize it or not, but human beings are inherently stubborn creatures. We do what we want to do. We go where we want to go, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. It is what we wanted to do. Nine out of ten times, 
Mom always said, people are going to do what they want to do, and that is generally true. The Word of God would have us to do what God would have us to do. And so in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, we're reading of the time of the judges. Now, there were a couple of famous judges in the Old Testament, just mention a couple of them that we know. One was Gideon, who was a man that had a shaky faith or a shaky confidence in his at least understanding of what God would have him to do and ask for signs and then ask for more signs. And then there was a man who was a judge named Samson who was on the tail end of the period of judges. Samson was a man who grew his hair out long. He was a very strong man and you can read the story of Samson and Delilah and all that took place in his life. But he was a judge. This sets the time again, the 11th to 14th centuries B.C. came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, this is Ruth chapter 1, there was a famine in the land. What is a famine? A famine is when there is not food. Sometimes there's not food in this day because there has been a drought or there has been some sort of a pestilence that has affected the crops. Maybe in the U.S., in the state of Alabama, we can think back to the time that I believe it was aphids that cause such trouble, and then you had boll weevils, and I remember learning about that in social studies back when they taught things such as that when I was in school. But if you've ever had a crop that you planted, you know that so many things can affect it. You can have rot. We used to grow watermelons in our yard because I was afraid the economy was going to crash, and I planted food in every corner of my yard, planted apple trees, planted all kinds of stuff. Well, my flower garden had strawberries, and the little space between my wood fence, driveway, and garage, it was full of watermelons. And the first year, we grew watermelons, and before any of them got large enough, they all had that black rot on them. And so all of them had to be thrown to my dog, who enjoyed them very much, but they were not ripe. So the next year, I planted the very small ones, and by the time it had the little black spot on it, there's nothing wrong with the inside of it. You could harvest it and you could eat it. But imagine if that was the only way to survive the year that you had the problem. And it could be a soil problem. It could be an animal problem. It could be a fungus. You name it, we've dealt with it in human society. And every time that happens, there's a famine. What happens when there's a famine? People starve. They don't have food. Now, what would have been the appropriate response of a child of Israel, children of Israel, in a day in Canaan's land where God gave them to have for a possession when there was a famine. They should stay there. They should worship God. They should keep the feasts, the festivals. They should keep the law. They should obey God in every way, trusting in His providence. And yet, what does this family do? A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. They go to Moab because they heard that there was food there. And Moab was a place in what is known today as Jordan, and it was a place that was very fertile. It was a place that at many times had great economic status, and there certainly had to have been food there. I'll give you a little bit of note about Moab. The country of Moab was founded by a man of that same name. These are the descendants of a man named Moab. Not to be too graphic with it, but you remember when Lot's daughters sinned because after Sodom and Gomorrah, they thought the end of the world had occurred and no humans were left in an attempt to raise up children unto their father. And the two children that were born to that sin was Moab and Benami. Moab was the father of the Moabites. Benami was the father of the Ammonites. And both the Moabites and the Ammonites were trouble for the nation of Israel throughout the existence of these other peoples. Moab, as a nation, would eventually be captured, taken into captivity by Babylon, and that's where their national story comes to an end. We read in other passages that God had given Moab a specific land because of Lot's sake. God blessed them with a portion of land. When God sends them into Canaan's land, He even tells Israel, don't go through Moab, that's not your land. This is your land. That's not your land. They go to sojourn in the land of Moab. This word Bethlehem, the land of Bethlehem, Bethlehem Judah, is remarkable to us because it is none other than the place of Jesus' birth. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because his family had to return home for the census. They had to return home for the taxing. Why did they return there? Because they were from Bethlehem. Why were they from Bethlehem? Because Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. Why does that matter? Because David was from Bethlehem. Why was David from Bethlehem? David was from Bethlehem because Elimelech, Naomi, and Boaz were from Bethlehem. So this story involves even the birthplace of the Lord Jesus, and that makes it to us very remarkable. A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the land, the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. At this time, his two sons are not married. They're going there, obviously, to escape the famine. They're going to a place that had caused the children of Israel to sin. In the book of Numbers, chapter 25, Moab seduced Israel to sin and commit idolatry. Moab was an occasional enemy of Israel. It was a very wicked city. Their national god was Shamash. They did very wicked things in the worship of their false god. So this man, Elimelech, leaves Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. They leave the house of bread. They leave the land that God had given them to go to a strange land. Now there are spiritual lessons all in what we're reading. Speaking to the young people here today, the place that you ought to be is among the people of your God. Now, we don't live in Israel today. We don't live in Israel today. But God has people in this world, and those people are to assemble in the church, and you are to live your life serving God in His church. The trouble is, in Elimelech and Naomi's life begins when they leave the house of bread, as it were. When they leave from the land that God had given them. Elimelech and Naomi, they're older. They have two adult sons, Malon and Chilion. The word Naomi means pleasantness. Pleasantness. And this is going to come into the narrative later on in the ch this first chapter of the book of Ruth. Elimelech and Naomi. They came into the country of Moab and they continued there. Now in verse 3 and continuing through verse 5, we find the tragedy of Naomi's life. The first few verses, the first chapter of the book of Ruth has as much to do with Naomi as it has to do with Ruth. As we entitled our message today, Two Responses to Catastrophe, the overall point of our message today is going to be how these two women handled the catastrophe, the tragedy that was about to befall them. They leave Bethlehem because there's a famine in the land. They come to the country of Moab. They continue there. Look at verse 3. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Tragedy. There are what-ifs that cause us to lay awake at night and worry about things that could happen in this world. And one of the things that we worry about the most just took place in Naomi's life. She lost her husband. That doesn't say how he dies. Scripture doesn't even say why he dies, though we'll comment on that from Naomi's perspective in a moment. As bad as that is, the life of Naomi is about to get worse. Tempted to make a joke about the life insurance policy. At least Rachel wouldn't be left without any consolation. Sometimes you feel like uh, George Bailey, I'm worth more dead than alive. She'd be at least happy on the way to the funeral home. Naomi's husband dies. Worst case scenario, and yet it gets worse than that. These two sons of hers took them wives of the women of Moab. Now, were they supposed to take wives of the women of Moab? 
They were not supposed to take wives of the women of Moab. God gave Israel explicit instruction to marry among the nation of Israel. It's the only time in the Bible, it's the only time in the Bible that there were any restrictions placed on marriage based upon nationality. The only restriction in the Bible that we have today on marriage is that we are not allowed to marry unbelievers and be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so when, and, and I've occasionally met Southerners who tried to defend this concept that people need to marry people of their own background. That is not biblical. And the extreme versions of that that have existed in this country, I am not afraid to refer to as heresy. Heresy. Rank ungodly, wicked heresy. So ask me what I think about it. You know, Moses married a woman from Ethiopia. His brother and his sister got mad and they griped about it and God sent them a plague. What does God think about it? God sent them a plague. That's nonsense. It has no place in the mind or the heart of a believer. Period. End of story. The only restriction that was ever given in the Bible as far as nationality concerned the nation of Israel. Why were the children of Israel not allowed to marry people of other nations? Because every nation had a national what? National God. By the way, Solomon took for himself many Moabite women as his princesses, his wives. Guess what they did? They caused his heart to go astray. And he allowed them to worship their false gods and even built them shrines to their false gods in the nation of Israel. Exactly what God warned against. And yet the wisest man on earth committed that sin. Obviously the parallel today would be that we're not allowed to marry unbelievers because they will make our heart go astray be not unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That's the only restriction. This is 2020. Provided that a man is marrying a woman. Provided that a man is marrying a woman. These two men, these young men, marry women of Moab. Now, the women, when they find them, were idolaters. And this will be very clear as we look at what Orpah does, one of the wives, in just a moment. They marry women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelled there together about ten years. A decade goes by. By the way, for parents, this is just a, a simple statement. I want my children to marry believers. You notice that the sons of Naomi married women based upon the location of where the parents were at the time. Now there's a lesson for us moms and dads there too. If I'm living in Moab, I shouldn't be surprised if my kids marry Moabites. In other words, if I'm outside of what God has called me to be as a father, as a disciple, if I'm living like the world, don't be surprised when my children walk in those footsteps and perpetuate the world. A lot of spiritual implications here. Again, Moabite at this time represents idolatry. Moabite at this time represents fornication. Numbers chapter 25, you can go look it up. They seduced them to commit idolatry and sin. Seduced them. Look at verse 5. And Milan and Chilion died also both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. It's bad enough to lose a loved one, a grandparent, a parent. It is absolutely terrifying to consider losing a spouse, but I could not imagine losing a spouse and my only children. That is simply unthinkable. And so this woman, Naomi, finds herself alone with her two daughters-in-law. 
She was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. We'll give you an English lesson. Notice that's daughters-in-law, not daughter-in-laws. The noun there is daughter. Daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. This is almost a glimpse into the story of the prodigal son. Affliction, after leaving the house of God, leaving the safety of our father's house, leaving the land that God has promised us, many times drives us back to God. Do you think they could keep the feasts of Israel while there in Moab? There's no indication that they ever went back. There's no part of the narrative that say that they went back. Could they keep tabernacles and trumpets? And perhaps they kept Passover. You could keep that in your home. But so many of those feasts required you to gather with the camp, the congregation of Israel. They're not keeping the law. They're not making sacrifices. They're out there living amidst the Moabites. Again, idolaters. Put that on a spiritual level for us today. And the afflictions versus the goodness of God's providence upon his people drive this woman back where she should have been the whole time in Canaan's land and the land that God had promised them. I'm going to tell you that afflictions in this world many times are intended to chasten us and drive us back to God. What is so terrifying to me today as a minister of the gospel is that we in this country are seeing more and more and more afflictions. And throughout it all, no one is saying repent. No one is turning. In fact, half the preachers you see on TV are saying God never does things that are negative to people. God would never send a plague. That's just what God are we talking about? Because the one that's in this book sent pestilence and plague and famine and illnesses to afflict them, to get them to turn. And as bad as it gets, we turn on the TV the next day and it just got worse. And despite all of that, rather than hitting our knees, the people in this country are obstinate and proud and becoming more and more hostile one to another. Let me tell you what, if we were hitting our knees in prayer, you wouldn't see buildings on fire in this country. People wouldn't be screaming at each other all day on social media. We'd be begging God for forgiveness. We're not because we're too busy looking for a political solution to everything. Are this, D that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That's not going to fix anything. What's going to fix it? is when people in this country hit their knees and say, they say, God, forgive me for this wicked idolatry. These afflictions drive her back to Bethlehem. She decides to go back and she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the country of, from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people and giving them bread. Wherefore, she went from... Forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return into the land of Judah. Now, Naomi is going to say something to these two women in just a moment. And you remember that they're not from Israel. They're from where? They're from Moab. They're Moabites. They're not Israelites. They have no heritage there in Israel. They have no roots in Israel. Israel isn't their home. Moab is their home. And Naomi, at this point in her life, is miserable and discouraged and bitter and angry and cynical. I feel like sometimes I could be describing myself, especially in this day and age. I don't know if you're smiling or staring at me. All I see is masks. It kind of feels like I'm preaching to mannequins. I'm sorry. I can't make out a facial expression in the whole room. Except Rachel. I can tell by her eyebrows when she's thinking, what are you saying? Anyway, back it up, preacher. I feel myself to be sometimes like Naomi is here. She's angry. She's discouraged. She's bitter. She's hostile. She's lost a husband. She's lost two sons. She says, I'm going back home. Go return to each 
her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She's saying, go home. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and they wept. I want to look at, first of all, the bitter response of Naomi in a couple of portions of this chapter and then conclude today with the believing response of Ruth. Naomi tells these women, first of all, go back home. They could have come with her. What would the mind of a lover of the God of Israel thought? Turn from your idolatries. Come to Canaan's land with me, to the land of Israel. Worship my God. Serve my God, for my God is the only true and living God. Is that not how they were supposed to be? In the Old Testament, you have all of these provisions in the law for the stranger in the gate. Who is the stranger in the gate? The non-Israelite proselyte. <clears throat> the non-Jew who was to come into Israel and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there were many provisions for them. And there are several examples in the Word of God of blessed, blessed proselytes who came in. What is a proselyte? A convert. One of the more famous ones who's also female that's also in the lineage of the Lord Jesus was a woman named Rahab in Jericho. What was Rahab? She was a prostitute, a harlot in Jericho. And yet she receives the spies and justified herself, declared that she was a righteous person when she received them by faith. She declared to them that she was righteous, and she married into the nation of Israel, and she is also in the genealogy of Jesus. Naomi should have said, Ruth, Orpah, come on to Canaan's land with me. She is so bitter. She is so distraught. She says, just go back home to your family. Go back home to your parents. Go back to each their mother's house, which might indicate that, notice she doesn't say return to their father's house. Perhaps each of them, their father had also died. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up her voice and wept. Now these women begin to protest. We want to stay with you. We want to be with you. What should Naomi have said? Come with me then. Naomi says, turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. What's that got to do with it? Listen, lest I should say, if I too should say, I have hope, if then I should have a husband also tonight and should bear sons, would you tarry for them till they are grown? In other words, if I somehow got married and somehow had children, are you going to stay with me and then marry the children that could be born? No, my daughters. For it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She feels perhaps even shame at this point, and she sends them away. They lifted up their voice, and they wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. What Orpah does, as you see here, she went back, as Naomi reports to Ruth, she went back unto her people, unto her God's, and then Naomi says, Ruth, you return thou after thy sister-in-law. In other words, Ruth, do like Orpah. Go back to your mom. Go back to your land. Go back to your idolatry. I'm sorry all of this has happened. Just go live the way you were before we met you. Now we're going to give you Ruth's reply in a minute. As we look at the believing response of Ruth. As you know, Ruth cleaves to Naomi, and that's a word that you find a derivative of that in verse 14. Ruth clave unto her. Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem, and when they come into Bethlehem, the city was moved about them and said, Is not this, is this Naomi? In other words, as she rides into town, the people are astonished. We've not seen her in ten years. We remember her. Bethlehem was a small town at this time. It's now just about the outskirts of Jerusalem. 
But it was a small town in their day. What's the famous song we sing around Christmas time? O little town of Bethlehem. What does the prophet say of Bethlehem? Though there are small among the nations, this is a small town. When you come from a small town and you go back to a small town, they know who you are. Not like Huntsville. Walk around. I don't need a mask. Walk around. People don't know who I am. They don't know me from Adam because so many people live here. But if you're from a small town like a like a Ragland, Alabama, use that occasionally as an example of a small town because they have to pipe in sunshine. It's the most deserted place in St. Clair County. Maybe you could look at it if you're from Woodville or if you're from Grant. If you're gone 10 years and you go back, people recognize you. They know who you are because it's a small town. Naomi comes back and they recognize her. Is this Naomi? Naomi says unto them, listen to the bitterness in her words. Call me not Naomi. Now again, what does the word Naomi mean? Pleasantness. Naomi means pleasant. It means delight. Call me not pleasant. Call me not delight. Call me Mara. The word Mara means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She's still blaming the problem on God. It's not God's fault. Whether she suffered because of the sin of Adam and the suffering that's common to this world, it's Adam's fault. Or if they found themselves out of the will of God and out of the providence of God and they experience what comes to all of us when we go prodigal, that would be their fault. It's not God's fault. Even when we are judged rightly of God, it's not God's fault. You parents, when you chasten your children, is it your fault? Whose fault is it when a child gets a spanking? It's a child's fault. We often say, children, it hurts me more than it hurts you, and it really does with me. I'm thinking I'm going to have arthritis in this hand. We used a spank spoon when Lydia was a little kid, a little plastic spoon. They may arrest me for saying this on the live stream. We used a little spank spoon just to pop the thigh. And one day I looked out the window. It had been missing for several months. And Lydia had thrown it out of Elijah's window, and it was in the gutter. She framed him. Well, he can't open the window. He's not that tall. Anyway, that was you. Arthritis. When a parent spanks a child, it's not the parent's fault that the child got a spanking. It's the child's fault for disobeying the parent. When a parent chastens a child in love and not in abuse or harshness or anger. She's blaming God for their problems. The Lord hath dealt bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi is bitter. But I want to give you the believing response of this godly woman, Ruth. And I say this is a godly woman. First of all, you young folks and, and us middle folks, and I'm still a young adult, young adult folks, notice the respect that she has for her elders and what she's about to say to her mother-in-law. She doesn't tell her, you're no use to me now, just go on, I've got no use for you. No, she doesn't do that. She respects her, she loves her, she cleaves to her, she would not let her go on her own. And throughout the remaining three chapters of this book, as we'll study through the next few weeks, the next few Lord's Days, she did all she could to take care of this woman, Naomi, because she was a godly woman of faith. When Naomi tells Ruth to leave, listen to what Ruth says. Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. This is very famous language. It's one of the more beautiful, famous portions of the book of Ruth that many of you have heard before. Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. 
Where thou diest will I die, there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Where have you heard that? Where have you read that? It's commonly used at weddings. My mother can be a little bit of a curmudgeon, and I don't think she'll watch this today, so I'm, I'm at least safe. I have a trim tool on Facebook. I can trim this part out. My dear mother, years ago, I went to a wedding, and as common, this language was on the program. You, know, you go to a wedding, you get a program. You go to a funeral, you get a program. Anyway, so on the program was this language. And it's used not with reference to a mom and a mother-in-law, but a husband and a wife. So many times in weddings. Preachers have used it. My mom looked at that and she said, It's not talking about a husband and wife. It's talking about a woman and her mother-in-law. That's true. But while this language did speak of Ruth's love and compassion towards Naomi, her respect for her as her elder, for her son's sake, her family's sake, and all of her trouble, Ruth has the right mentality about everything taking place. These words epitomize what it means to join in with the disciples of Christ and follow after the Lord Jesus. Thy God shall be my God. I think rather than quoting this language at wedding ceremonies, and it's appropriate then, I think we ought to quote this language and have someone recite this language when they're baptized. Now, let's go back and read that and apply it to the believing response of an afflicted child of God as they unite in with the house of God. Let's apply it that way. Let's find a lesson for me and you out of the faithful example of Ruth. Entreat me not to leave thee, the disciples of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus, or return from following after thee, we could say to Jesus. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And when Naomi saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, she left off speaking unto her. As we bring our thoughts today to a close, when the troubles of this world come our way, and they do, and they have, and they will, and at present, in many senses, they are, we could have one of two responses. We could be like Naomi. We could be bitter. We could shift the blame. We could point fingers. We could say, this isn't my fault. This is God's fault. Maybe I deserved it, but God has been harsh with me, and I'm so bitter. Or we could be like that faithful woman of God faithful woman of God, found even among the Gentile Moabites, an idolatrous city, who said, I'm not leaving you. I'm not returning to my gods. I'm going to be with your people. I'm going to worship your God. I'm going to serve your God till death do us part. May we be as Ruth.